Uh, for well over a decade, uh, Dr. Joe Gladhar has spent many long but I hope productive hours in our library poring over thousands of Civil War manuscripts. And the result of his hard work here and at other research institution, institutions can be seen in the 10 books that he has either edited or, or has authored or edited in, in scores of articles, essays, and reviews. And I think we could say he is truly one of our country's leading Civil War scholars. Although we first came to know Dr. Gladhar when he was at the University of Houston, for the last several years, years he's been just down the road in Chapel Hill and is professor of history at the University of North Carolina. He specializes in uh, Civil War history and military history in general. And for those of you who know his work, he has concentrated uh, his uh, attention on soldier life in both the Confederate and Union Army. And his new book, which is just hot off the presses, takes a look at perhaps the Civil War's most famous soldiers in Army, the Army of Northern Virginia. And it is titled General Lee's Army from Victory to Collapse. And as is always the case, he will be happy to sign copies in our museum shop uh, after the, today's program. So please join me in welcoming a good friend of the Virginia Historical Society up from Chapel Hill, Dr. Joe Gladhart. Joe? Thank you very much, fellow Virginia Historical Society members and guests. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. This book talk, took me a long time to finish. In fact, uh, I started working on it about the same time that all of this was m a mere gleam in Charlie Bryan's eye. So uh, I actually started working on this book in 1989. So let's see how good it is. When Abraham Lincoln called out for troops to put down a rebellion, Confederate President Jefferson Davis had to formulate a strategy. And what he came up with was a notion to punish invaders. He wanted to discourage future advances and attacks against the Confederate population. And he also wanted to convince the Northern public of the futility of military efforts to subjugate the Confederate states. As Brigadier General Edward Porter Alexander wrote, the Confederacy, Confederacy hoped that the desperation of her resistance would finally exact from her adversary such a price in blood and treasure as to exhaust the enthusiasm of its population for the objects of war. We could not hope to conquer her. Our one chance was to wear her out. Davis believed that the Confederacy must strike Union invaders near the border. As he wrote, resist invasion as far as may be practicable and repel the invaders whenever and however it may be done. Because citizens and soldiers lived along avenues of invasion, Davis believed the Confederacy could not yield territory unless it was absolutely necessary. Quote, the evacuation of any portion of territory involves not only the loss of supplies, but in every instance has been attended by a greater or less loss of troops. Now, against a vastly superior manpower, the man, uh, against the vastly superior manpower and resources of the Union, there really was no strategy that was devoid of problems. Jefferson Davis certainly knew that. For the Confederate States of America, there would be enormous hardships, sacrifices, and tragedies. 
The war would stretch Confederate manpower and resources to the breaking point. And in an effort to deliver those heavy blows, the Confederacy would suffer huge losses. Nonetheless, Davis believed the Confederate people could endure any sacrifice for freedom and independence. Quote, we will do all that can be done by pluck and muscle, endurance and dogged courage, dash and red-hot patriotism, Davis insisted. No Confederate army fulfilled that strategy like the Army of Northern Virginia. Yet even it wore down in the face of two, three, and ultimately four years of fighting against those overwhelming resources. The margin for error, for error dwindled. Fissures appeared in every institution and every facet of life in the Confederate States, including the Army of Northern Virginia. Despite its Herculean efforts, the Army, too, was overcome. The Army of Northern Virginia had to utilize manpower and resources effectively, yet neither Joseph E. Johnston nor Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard established effective precedents or policies with regard to this. Three times they abandoned positions, Harper's Ferry, Northern Virginia, and the Manassas-Centerville axis, and in each instance there was a massive destruction of supplies and equipment. This destruction sent the wrong message to the troops, specifically that the preservation of valuable war materiel and foodstuffs was not that important. Now, every organization has a culture, and the Army of Northern Virginia was no different. Generally, Army culture derives from two aspects. One is what the soldiers bring with them from civil life into the military, and the second is the military experience and training that they receive. Normally, boot camp tears down and rebuilds so that the culture flows from the top down. But with no such experience, and because law officers largely came from home, were learning on the job, and, and with few exceptions, failed to rigorously discipline their men, the culture of the Army of Northern Virginia flowed more from the bottom up. At the core, virtually all these citizen soldiers shared the same fundamental beliefs in the rightness of secession and slavery. From society, they inherited Southern honor, an overarching concept that embraced powerful perceptions of manhood, integrity, independence, valor, kinship, and esteem, and among the elites, both luxury and generosity. In times of war, a wholehearted allegiance to the spirit of honor would serve its soldiers well. But Southern society also promoted certain qualities that did not benefit the Confederate nation in a war against the better-resourced Union. A lack of discipline, and particularly among the well-to-do, a spirit of profligacy and self-indulgence were acceptable modes of conduct before the war. Closely related to one another, these three behaviors elevated the individual over the group and tolerated conduct in uniform that was not conducive to effective military service. More than simply a spirit of individualism, which the Army could harness and convert to military purposes, these qualities diminished the usefulness of the soldier. In the pre-war South, an individual who squandered money recklessly was not necessarily scorned. In some circles, he earned praise by distinguishing himself from his penurious, materialistic northern countrymen. 
Southerners, particularly males, aspired to fulfill their every impulse and desire, and society tolerated and often encouraged indulgence. Attention to administrative detail and other mundane matters were beneath many of them. Undisciplined conduct, an open expression of passion, or a ready resort to violence was not necessarily considered unbecoming in the pre-war South. After all, to adhere to a code of discipline meant that others imposed their will on the individual. Such dominance of the individual smacked of slavery, and Southern whites were extremely sensitive to it. Even in the realm of laws and codes of moral conduct, Southern males abided by them voluntarily, not out of compunction. If society compelled them to obey, then it dominated the individual and deprived him of his manhood, and no self-respecting white Southerner could endure that. These qualities made them wonderful, motivated soldiers, but they also promoted their resistance to discipline, which in turn was the key to effective utilization of limited resources. On May 31, 1862, in the Battle of Seven Pines, Joseph E. Johnston was badly wounded. Jefferson Davis relieved Robert E. Lee of his duties temporarily as military advisor and assigned him to command the field army. When Lee stepped into that job, he confronted two major problems. One, obviously, Union forces were at the gates of Richmond. And secondly, administrative problems had emerged in the army. Staff officers practiced sloppy paperwork, soldiers failed to conserve, and as a result, Troops went without and suffered, and the prognosis looked worse for the future. Lee's reputation from the United States Military Academy and his service in the Mexican War and as superintendent of West Point preceded him. Yet within certain circles, there was an undercurrent of doubt about Lee. Edward, Edmund Kirby Smith described Lee's appointment as the head of Virginia forces as, quote, unfortunate, unquote. Smith, like numerous others, was put off by Lee's slowness to come to a decision. Sam Melton, who served on Brigadier General Milligel Bonham's staff and had a very favorable opinion of Lee, informed his wife in May 1861 that Lee, quote, is a splendid officer, slow, too slow, but thoroughly accomplished, unquote. In a letter that has become almost famous for its misreading of the man, South Carolina Governor Francis W. Pickens announced to Bonham just before First Manassas, Quote, the, Lee, the truth is Lee is not with us at heart, or he is a common man with good looks and too cautious for practical revolution, unquote. Even Lee's trusted staff member, Walter H. Taylor, complained late in the war to his future bride about Lee's slowness to arrive at a decision. He is too undecided, Taylor grumbled, takes too long to firm his conclusions. After Lee's first campaign, a failure amid the rugged terrain of Western Virginia, his reputation plummeted even more. Fueled by excessively optimistic tales in the newspapers as the campaign was unfolding, soldiers and civilians alike believed Lee had committed some irretrievable blunder. Newspapers and the public howled over Lee's incompetence. Edward A. Pollard, a Richmond newspaper man and a sharp critic of the Davis administration, determined, quote, the most remarkable circumstance of this campaign was that it was conducted by a general who had never fought a battle, who had a pious horror of guerrillas, and whose extreme tenderness of blood induced him to depend exclusively upon the resources of strategy 
to essay the achievement of victory without cost of lives, unquote. A student at West Point when Lee was superintendent, Ben Alston, reported to his father that people called Lee a dirt dauber, a small insect that leaves a soil trail in its wake. Alexander C. Haskell, a family friend of the Lees, described to his mother satirical sketches he had seen of Lee, quote, with a double-barrel spyglass in one hand and a spade in the other reconnoitering the position of the enemy. The caption read, to retreat a little and throw up fortifications the instant he sets eyes upon them, end quote. Haskell believed this is unjust to a fine officer, but it does somewhat exhibit his very cautious policy. When, of course, to escape this pressure, Davis transferred Lee to South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, but as the spring 1862 campaign began to kick off, Davis brought him back to Richmond and assigned him as Davis's military advisor. The public reaction was hostile. The appointment of General Lee as chief military advisor of the president looks like a fatal mistake, Thomas Preston of Joseph E. Johnston's staff wrote. Lee's traits of mind would prove more problematic than they were the previous year, he predicted. May God in mercy protect us. Catherine Edmonston, a North Carolinian and an unusually perceptive diarist, held nothing but contempt for Lee. He is too timid, believes too much in masterly inactivity, finds his strength too much in sitting still, she recorded. Even Lee's counterpart on the Union side, Major General George B. McClellan, rejoiced when he thought that Lee in his new position would supplant Johnston. I prefer Lee to Johnston, he elaborated to Lincoln. The former is too cautious and weak under grave responsibility. Personally brave and energetic to a fault, he yet is wanting in moral firmness when pressed by heavy responsibility and is likely to be timid and irresolute in action. Talk about projection. <laughs> Lee's previous positions as head of Virginia forces and then military advisor to the president exposed him to the resources that were available to the Confederacy. And Lee understood fully how and in what ways the Confederate people could contribute to the war. He insisted the Confederate people, quote, must make up our minds to great suffering. All must be sacrificed to the country. As Army commander, Lee began to institute numerous changes. The first, of course, and most obvious, Special Orders Number 22, June 1st, 1862, where he called the Army of the Potomac the Army of Northern Virginia. Second, he established and enforced routines for the distribution of provisions and required division commanders to scrutinize the requisitions of subordinates. Johnston's staff had been horrible at administering, and the neglect of, paper, of procedure and paperwork filtered down the chain of command, resulting in sloppiness, occasional neglect, and a squandering of precious resources. In some instances, soldiers didn't even get fed, even though there was plenty of food available, and it was due to paperwork. Third, Lee circulated directives to all officers to pay attention to, quote, health and, the health and comfort of the men under command and spare unnecessary exposure and fatigue. The purpose was so that everyone would be ready for the ensuing battle. Lee even authorized whiskey rations, quote, when deemed essential to the health of the men, end quote. Lee cracked down on lost or damaged supplies, which hindered the war effort severely, quote, 
the increasing difficulty in replacing them, he directed, makes greater watchfulness and care necessary in their preservation. End quote. One week later, he complained, the means of supply are becoming more limited while the demand continues great. He recycled barrels and instructed troops to conserve ammunition. Damage and destruction of public property injured the Confederate cause. On his daily rides, Lee, quote, observed with concern in passing through camps too much disregard to the proper preservation of public property. He was firmly convinced that our success is mainly dependent upon the economical and proper appropriation of public property at all times. Compared to their northern enemy, Confederates had very little margin for error. To win, they must husband resources. Lee then embarked on gathering intelligence from the enemy, from newspapers, and then sent Jeb Stewart's cavalry on a ride around the Union position. It was all with the intention of planning an attack. He directed his sharpshooters and artillerists to pester the enemy as much as possible, as enemy work parties must be arrested. At the same time, Lee decided he must employ his other troops in building and improving their works. Yet he was challenging a naive cultural perspective on warfare among Confederates. They wanted to slug it out in the open field and rely on their superior character and martial skills to win the day. Lee knew that was not the case. Quote, our people are opposed to work, the general alerted the commander-in-chief. In our troops, officers, community, and press all ridicule and resist it. It was the very means by which McClellan was closing in on Richmond. Quote, why should we leave to him the whole advantage of laborers? Combined with valor, fortitude, and boldness, of which we have no fair proportion, it should lead us to success. After describing how the Romans combined fortifications and fighting so skillfully, he then concluded, there is nothing so military as labor and nothing so important to our army as to save the lives of its soldiers. Three days into command, he ordered each division to assign 300 men to work under the supervision of engineer officers to dig earthworks, make, make abatis that sharpen cross sticks, and build other obstructions and fortifications. Soldiers resented the labor. Lee didn't care. Trenches and works would save rebel lives and multiply combat power. He also ordered men to, quote, strengthen their positions in the most perfect manner with redoubts, barricades, abatis, rival pits, etc., so that everyone had a hand in the manual labor, end quote. To, sh to check the flagrant straggling and plundering and to keep troops with their commands, Lee ordered each regimental commander to create a provost guard consisting of a lieutenant, a non-commissioned officer, and ten privates. He also directed that, quote, no officer is authorized to withdraw his command from its position in line of battle to procure ammunition, end quote. Am ammunition would be brought forward to them. And fight they did winning the Seven Days and the Second Manassas campaigns, driving the Yankees from nearly all of Virginia, and taking the war into Maryland. After three months of fighting, however, Lee knew that he had serious discipline problems. Lee believed, quote, the material of which it is composed is the best in the world, and nothing can surpass the gallantry and intelligence of the main body. But there are individuals who, from their backwardness in duty, tardiness of movements, and neglect of orders, do it no credit. 
Soldiers brought with them from civil life qualities and motivations that made Confederates, in Lee's opinion, the best infantrymen in the world. But other aspects injured their cause in other ways. Had the Confederacy organized units differently, Lee argued, had they not been introduced prematurely into combat without adequate training and regimentation, and had they not endured a series of harsh conditions, hard marches, and frequent campaigns and battles, Lee felt they might have been able to alter military culture. But the demands of war permitted no such opportunity. By the time Lee was in a position to implement changes, he encountered three difficulties. One, military culture had already taken hold and it would be extremely difficult to break. Two, the officers upon whom he would have to rely to alter that military culture came from the same communities and to a great extent shared the same backgrounds as their enlisted men. Three, furloughed troops and new recruits came from that civilian world, offering steady reminders of the culture that soldiers left behind. That, however, did not stop Lee from trying. After Antietam in September 1862, Lee directed Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet to, quote, infuse a different spirit among our officers and to inspire them in making every necessary effort to bring about a better state of discipline. They must, quote, impress men and officers with the importance of a change necessary to the preservation of this army and its successful accomplishment of its mission, as its better discipline, greater mobility, and higher inspirations must counterbalance the many advantages over us, both in numbers and material, which the enemy possess. But those who were to inculcate discipline, the officers, had suffered very heavy losses. Over the three months from the opening salvos at seven days to the first shot at Antietam, only 30% of the division commanders still commanded divisions in Lee's army, and almost four of every 10 brigade commanders had changed. For the entire war, almost a quarter of all officers were killed in action, and four of every five officers was either killed or wounded at least once. Officers were more than twice as likely to be killed in battle than were enlisted men, and more than one and a half times more likely to receive a wound. From seven days through Antietam, some 600 Confederate officers were killed and 2,000 were wounded. By the summer of 1864, the Army would suffer close to 1,000 more officers killed since Antietam and another 4,000 wounded. That meant from seven days through midsummer 1864, 1,600 officers were killed in action and over 6,000 were wounded in action. In most cases, replacements did no better at disciplining the men than the originals. What our officers most lack is the pains and labor of inculcating discipline, Lee complained to Davis in mid-August 1864. It is a painful and tedious process and is not apt to win popular favor. Many officers have too many selfish views to promote to induce them to undertake the task of instructing and disciplining their commands. Lee believed that his enlisted men lacked discipline and the officers could not instill it in them because they lacked discipline themselves. As one inspector explained to Confederate headquarters, the extensive fighting stripped away, quote, the best and most efficient men in each command. And in too many companies, there is not left material out of which to make company commanders, end quote. Yet there was little the Confederacy could do. 
If there was any consolation, at least these replacements were, as Major General George Pickett argued, quote, gallant and meritorious in action, end quote, and soldiers trusted them to lead them in battle. Even worse, supply and transportation problems became so severe that soldiers had to take matters into their own hands. We all know how much food young people can eat. Quantity, not necessarily quality, is the watchword. But these soldiers, when they entered the army, did not know how to cook and were wholly unaccustomed to such bad food. A Georgia private grumbled of eating biscuits so hard, quote, I could knock a bowl down with one, end quote. A soldier named Bacon had quite a time baking bread for the first time. The first time I made up dough, I had a mess of it, stuck to my hands and hardly could get it off. I then tried to bake it, but I could not get it done. Some was burnt up and some was raw. What a mess I had. The best story, though, is a mess that decided they wanted to make biscuits, so they stole what they thought was lard, made the biscuits, and then as they were baking them, they found out that it was tallow instead. <laughs> One guy ate three of the biscuits anyway and pronounced them good and recommended they continue using it, but they, he was outvoted by his mess. In an average year, between 800,000 and 1 million bushels of wheat were shipped to Richmond. In 1862, even though the city's population had doubled and there were between 70 and 80,000 Confederate soldiers in Lee's army who needed to be fed, only 250,000 to 300,000 bushels of wheat came to the city. One full-grown cow provided enough meat to issue a full ration to 200 soldiers. By mid-January 1863, the army supply of cattle had dwindled down to enough to last through the end of the month only, and those cattle that remained were thin due to insufficient grazing. The other meat, pork, didn't fare so well either. The standard joke in Lee's army was that bacon outranks General Lee. In late April and early May 1863, rations for a single day had to stretch out over three. At the Battle of Chancellorsville, some soldiers literally had no food in their haversacks. If they overran Yankees, they ate. If they didn't, they didn't eat. In mid-December 1863, Lee's army had only 10 days of meat rations stockpiled, and quote, according to Jefferson Davis, every pound has been sent up, end quote. By early January 1864, Davis admitted the army issued one quarter of a pound of meat per man per day, and Lee had only one more day's issue on hand. When the Yankees quipped that the Confederates had a new general, general starvation, they were not far off the mark. On the march or in camp, troops regularly purchased and then later swiped food from locals. By late 1863, there was little left to take. Instead, troops turned to their own government to pilfer food. As an Alabama private asserted, hunger will drive a man to do anything you may depend. The Confederate government admitted that in 1863 alone, 617,000 pounds of bacon were stolen. According to the Assistant Commissary of Subsistence in January 1864, quote, every shipment of meat is robbed of from 8 to 1,500 pounds, end quote. While civilians certainly took their share, soldiers were also responsible. It was not difficult to board trains as they moved between 8 and 10 miles per hour. Soldiers also began placing obstructions on railroad tracks. When the train stopped, they boarded and stole the food. Since the Confederacy was short in manpower, 
they couldn't afford the luxury of guards over the train, so it was easy to get away with it. To combat the practice, the Confederacy had to place guards with orders to shoot saboteurs on the spot. Lee tried to solve the problem. As a solution, he suggested an alteration of priorities and civilian consumption habits. Soldiers in the field should become the top nation's priority. If it requires all the meat in the country to support the army, it should be had, and I believe this could be accomplished by not only showing its necessity, but that all equal, equally contributed and that it was faithfully applied. If the government could convince the public to consume foodstuffs that cannot be so well used by the troops in the field, it would save other eatables for his men. Clothing, too, was a big problem. Early on, soldiers came into the army, it wore out, and then there was a severe shortage. As one soldier com commented about his pants, they were more holy than righteous. Shortages of coats, hats, and pants were epidemic problems. Even in the winter of 64-65, soldiers attended inspections without pants. Shoes were an especially big problem. The Confederacy kept purchasing shoes, but the quality was so poor that they wore out very, very rapidly. In one instance, Lee's army received 10,000 pairs, which it sent back 3,024. Ultimately, Lee had to assign 271 soldiers who were shoemakers before the war to ply their trade on behalf of the army. It wasn't enough. Soldiers, accustomed to solving problems themselves, took matters into their own hands. Early on, they had plundered on the battlefield for money and valuables, weapons and mementos. By late 1862, they had no choice but to plunder for food and clothing. As cold weather approached once again, soldiers hoped for a battle so that they could clothe themselves properly for the winter. In fact, the majority of the troops are eager for a fight, one officer wrote his father. The battlefield is the greatest storehouse of winter equipments and pocket money, and our boys have a pension for both. A Virginia private and pre-war carpenter concurred. I have rather been in hopes that if they were going to fight at all, that it would come off, for I want some overcoats and blankets. If our men whip them, I would stand a good chance to get some, he explained to his wife. Animals, too, were in short supply and dire straits. The artillery, uh, in the spring of 1862, the artillery alone was short 1,200 animals. Even if they had them, they couldn't have fed them, though. In early 1863, Lee had to direct subordinates to feed their animals on twigs and bark from poplars, maples, and sweet gums because they couldn't get enough forage for the animals. In the latter part of 1863, Lee had to, to reduce the number of guns in his artillery because he could not feed the animals. In November 1863, the commanding general complained to Davis, quote, no corn was received here on the 21st and 23rd, and on the 22nd and 24th, about five pounds per horse. Two and a half pounds per day was about one-tenth what the Union fed its animals. In the, in the course of 40 days, without any campaigning, a cavalry brigade increased its dismounted men from 292 to 681 due to forage shortfalls. Prior to secession, southern states had developed a transportation network that serviced distant markets predominantly with non-perishable goods, such as cotton, tobacco, and sugar. With, few, with a few exceptions, most perishable products came locally. 
By the winter of 1862-63, the Confederacy had so overused its rail system in Virginia that it was becoming increasingly unreliable. The Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad was not designed for much freight, and with the army along the Rappahannock that, the winter of 62-63, that created problems. They had to rely on the Virginia Central, probably the most important railroad in the state, as the only viable alternative. It intersected with the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac at Hanover Junction. From there, it ran to Charlottesville and then through the Shenandoah Valley. Workers could unload supplies at Hanover Junction and place them on wagons, but then they had to hold them in the wintertime 35 miles to the Army, which was a real problem in bad weather. Even worse, the Virginia Central was badly overused. Its tracks had declined significantly in two years of war. Due to overuse and a lack of repair, its, quote, efficiency is most seriously impaired, end quote, so the railroad president informed Jefferson Davis. In mid-March 1863, the line suffered four derailments in a five-day span. To reduce derailments, officials had to cut the weight in each car by 25% and slow down the speed. Lee's solution? By early 1864, Lee sought the suspension of all rail travel except on government business for use of supplying the army. In addition, quote, all population whose presence would impede or endanger our efforts should be removed, especially that part of it which increases the consumption of public stores without aiding or strengthening the army, end quote. He wanted prisoners, parolees, federal deserters, and unemployed persons removed from Richmond. And, quote, every encouragement given to the rest of the non-combatant population to retire, except those whose services may be useful or who will not increase the scarcity of supplies, end quote. If the individual did not contribute directly to the war effort through military or government service, production, direct labor, or transportation, the government needed to urge them to leave the Richmond area to conserve supplies for the troops. As the Confederate margin for error winnowed in the area of supply and transportation, it declined severely in manpower as well. Effective implementation of Davis' strategy was extremely costly. Four of every ten soldiers in Lee's army was either killed or wounded, and five of every nine was either killed, wounded, or captured before the final surrender. One in 16 suffered multiple wounds in multiple battles, and another one in 10 were wounded and imprisoned. By factoring in those who were discharged for disabilities, almost three of every four soldiers who served in the Army of Northern Virginia were either killed, died of disease, wounded, captured, or discharged for disability. Almost three of every four. Those statistics rise to over 80% when you factor out soldiers who deserted for the remainder of the war. Not only did these, so much for the loss of will thesis, huh? Not only did these terrible losses damage the army, but they also hurt morale at home. Even in the face of a resounding triumph, casualties cut to the core of wartime support. Take North Carolina for example, a state that narrowly embraced secession. What fueled the fires of dissatisfaction more than anything were the tremendous casualties that North Carolinians suffered in Lee's army in a very short space of time. Behind Virginia, North Carolina sent the most troops to, to the, Lee's army the, in the spring of summer of 1863. 
At Chancellorsville, nearly three in every 10 North Carolinians were killed, wounded, or captured, by far the greatest total and percentage of any state in Lee's army. The seven highest totals of killed and wounded fell to North Carolina regiments. Two months later, at Gettysburg, after the Army had added two huge North Carolina brigades, 46.4% of all North Carolinians were killed, wounded, or captured. The top four regimental casualty figures and six of the seven highest occurred in North Carolina regiments. So in two battles, 13 of the 14 highest regimental casualties were North Carolina regiments. North Carolina lost 1,782 more soldiers at Gettysburg than the next highest state, which was Virginia, a difference that constituted more casualties than eight Confederate states suffered during the Battle of Gettysburg. Then, to worsen the discrepancy, at Bristow Station, nearly all casualties in Lee's army came from North Carolina, well above 10% of the North Carolinians in the army. And while it's difficult to determine with precision, a reasonable calculation over a a five-and-a-half-month period from late April to mid-October 1863 indicates that seven of every ten North Carolinians who served in Lee's army were casualties. The impact of those losses in the most successful and the impact of those losses in the most successful and visible Confederate Field Command, the Army of Northern Virginia on North Carolina home front was devastating and coincided precisely with the rise of disaffection in the state. To compensate for the productivity decline associated with manpower loss to the Army, Confederates relied on blacks who proved increasingly undependable as the war went on. More and more, they slowed down work, ran off to the Yankees, or caused general uneasiness among the population that remained behind. Fred Fleet an enlisted man who rose to brevet second lieutenant in the 26th Virginia and whose father owned 34 slaves, recognized the collapse of the institution in Virginia in late 1864. They have been stolen from their masters and have run away of their own accord to such an extent that the deficiency can only be supplied by reopening the slave trade to which our people as a class are bitterly opposed. In a conversation with Former governor and then, and at the time, General Henry Wise, Wise told Fleet that, quote, slavery is a dead issue here in Virginia, end quote. And according to Fleet, quote, his opinion has considerable weight with me, end quote. Attrition wore down Confederates as Lee tried desperately to increase manpower strength. I have the honor to present to you the absolute necessity that exists, in my opinion, to increase our armies if we desire to oppose effectual resistance to the vast numbers that the enemy is now precipitating upon us, Lee notified the Secretary of War in January 1863. Every man who remains out of service increases the dangers to which the brave men who have so well borne the burden of war are exposed. Lee believed the Confederate people, quote, must put forth their full strength at once, He asked the Secretary of War to call on governors to appeal to their constituents to fill their ranks using, quote, shame, end quote, against those who will not heed the dictates of honor and of patriotism, end quote. Lee found himself, in one instance, under arrest for unknowingly overturning the Secretary of War's directive, 
the Secretary of War had ordered some individual soldiers to serve as clerks. Lee overturned it because he was trying to increase the number of rifle toters. And he didn't realize the Secretary of War had issued the order, so Lee found himself under arrest. I mean, he quickly explained the matter away, and the arrest warrant was removed, but kind of funny to think of Lee under arrest, isn't it? Company and other intermediate, intermediate commanders are constantly demurring in consequence of the reduction of their commands by details, Lee wrote Longstreet, and I desire to make only such as are absolutely necessary. To give you an idea, after two weeks of campaigning in May 1864, Lee's army had six generals killed, nine wounded, and three captured. By the end of May, look at Lee's highest or most important officers. Longstreet was wounded. Ewell had collapsed from exhaustion. A.P. Hill was, was out ill regularly, probably with prostatitis. Stewart was killed. Lee suffered from dysentery and did not get more than two hours of consecutive sleep for a single night over the first three weeks of that campaign. By early June, the campaign locked into trench warfare with all the harsh conditions that entailed. From September 1862 through July 1864, hospitals in Virginia had admitted 413,000 patients due to illness or injury. During the three months of May, June, and July 1864 alone, Soldiers made up 102,000 patients checked into Virginia hospitals. The grind was becoming devastating. Nor could Lee effectively replace those who went down. He had squeezed everyone he could in uniform back into the ranks, and conscription had augmented his numbers too. As the Army passed through communities, Lee instructed his corps commanders to enroll all citizens who were not exempt from the draft. Incidentally, this is an aside, and I know I'm going to end up running over by going into this, but I can't help but mention it. About, eight, about one in every eight soldiers the last two years of the war in the Army of Northern Virginia were conscripts. But listen to the exemption issues. In Virginia, only 2% claimed exemption under the 15 slave law. 2%. Four times as many farmers, four times as many railroad workers, four times as many millers received exemptions. Five times as many shoemakers more than, and more than five times as many government officials did. Even doctors and clergymen received twice as many exemptions as slaveholders who had 15 or more slaves. By the end of 1864, decreed the Bureau of Conscription, there were no more conscripts to tap except 16-year-olds who were coming of age. In Virginia, that was only 2,719 young men. By 1864, food for man or beast had become more and more scarce. Combat had discouraged farmers from planting in the Shenandoah Valley as far south as Bunker Hill, and a drought had devastated the corn crop from Stanton to Newmarket, reducing corn production by a third. Animals got about two and a half to five pounds of feed per day. Union animals got 23 to 26 pounds per day. It was no better for humans. Had Cavalry Commander Wade Hampton not seized nearly 2,500 beeves from the Yankees, providing nearly a month of meat for the Army, matters that summer and fall would have been even worse. But as cold weather descended, life in the trenches became even more worse. Soldiers seldom received more than a pound of corn meal or, and a quarter pound of beef per day. 
By 1865, the commissary could not even sustain that meager bounty. Quantities, too, declined so that the government often issued a quarter pound of beef and either a pound of bread or three quarters of a pound of corn meal per day, between 900 and 1,200 calories. That's slow starvation, people. The U.S. Army feeds its military personnel today in a combat zone 4,000 calories a day, and the Army deems that necessary just to maintain body weight and strength. Many days the government could supply troops with either meat or a starch, cornmeal, and when I talk about starch, I'm talking about cornmeal or flour, but not both. The government diverted corn intended for horses to go to soldiers, which the soldiers naturally found rather unpalatable. Supplies from elsewhere came at a glacial pace. Lee had to draw supplies from as far away as Georgia, taxing the rail lines even more. One line was so bad that trains traveled an average of one mile per hour. Once Sherman began his advance in Georgia and then South Carolina, he cut off food supplies from, by rail from Georgia and then South Carolina, which squeezed Lee's army even more. It was not until the combination of Lincoln's re-election and Sherman's march that desertion began to soar. In 1865, it got worse and worse. Little clothing, little food, too little rest, and too much work sapped soldiers of their motivation to fight. To give you an idea of overwork, one brigade of 1,187 privates had to defend 2,400 yards of parapet and 2,300 yards of picket every day. Good soldiers, tried soldiers, began to lose faith and desert, men who had fought well in dozens of battles. Those final weeks were awful for Lee's men. Over the course of February and March, Lee's army lost, on average, about 120 men to desertion every day, comparable to an infantry brigade present for duty every 10 days. Others held on. Where they found the fortitude, it's hard to say. On the retreat from the Richmond-Petersburg line westward towards Appomattox, their physical deterioration from poor conditioning prevented thousands from keeping up. Unlike previous campaigns where soldiers purposely straggled, many just could not keep up on the march even if they wanted to. For months, Lee's army lived on a diet that lacked a half of the necessary protein to maintain muscle mass, and provided less than two-thirds the necessary calories to sustain body mass. That, the diet, largely a quarter pound of beef, two pints of coarse cornmeal, and occasional small amounts of molasses, was woefully deficient in most vitamins, resulting in weakness and absorption problems of protein, minerals, and vitamins, with soldiers suffering skin ailments, night blindness, anemia, scurvy, and diarrhea. What that means is, that they got so few minerals and vitamins that they weren't able to effectively absorb the little protein and other nutrients that the foodstuffs contained. Talk about a vicious cycle. Dr. J.W. Powell, medical director of the Third Corps, commented on the Corps inspection report in February 1865, while there was not found much absolute sickness existing, there were many weak and feeble men who cannot be relied upon to undergo any great physical exertions, end quote. Although Lee once more called for discipline and reminded them of patriotism, he could get nothing more from most of his troops. Thousands dropped out of the retreat march. 
some falling into Yankee hands and others slowly working their way toward home because they lacked the stamina to keep up. For four long years, this army had battled overwhelming federal manpowers and resources brilliantly. Close to 30,000 of them fell in combat, and more than 125,000 suffered wounds. But punish the Yankees, they did. Almost two of every five Union soldiers who died in battle fell at the hands of Lee's troops, and they inflicted almost three of every five Yankee wounds in combat. In fact, it's probably closer on both to about 44%, because the Yankees considered a person who was mortally wounded as wounded, Confederates considered a mortally wounded soldier as killed in action. So they inflicted probably around 44% of all the combat casualties that the Yankees suffered. In the last year of the war, Grant's forces sustained almost 127,000 casualties against the Army of Northern Virginia. That's 83% of all the combat casualties that Lee's army suffered for the entire war. In General Order Number 9, a farewell to his troops, Lee stated that they had been, quote, compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources, end quote. To President Jefferson Davis, 10 days later, Lee blamed the, quote, unquote, moral condition of the Army for defeat. The operations which occurred while the troops were in the entrenchments in front of Richmond and Petersburg were not marked by the boldness and decision which formally characterized them. Except in particular instances, they were feeble, and a want of confidence seemed to possess officers and men. The condition, I think, was produced by the state of feeling in the country and the communications received by the men from their homes urging their return and the abandonment of the field, from the field. Both were correct. Rebels confronted vast Union superiority, and over the course of four years, it wore the Confederacy down. Ultimately, the Army of Northern Virginia did not collapse because of Southern culture, industry, agriculture, slavery, motivations, manpower shortages, discontent at home, or any other solitary factor. Intense and sustained Union pressure caused serious fissures in all of these areas, winnowing away that margin for error and collectively bringing down the Army and the Confederacy. (coughs) Excuse me. Four long years of war damaged or disrupted virtually every aspect of Confederate life. The demoralization to which Lee referred was a consequence of all these problems, not a cause. Private Thomas Petty, a pre-war clerk in Washington, D.C., who lost friendships over secession, gazed at the stars on a warm July night, 1861. Suddenly a comet rocketed through the night sky. The next day, he read in Richmond newspapers that no one had predicted the passing of the celestial body. He wondered what it meant. Perhaps it portends or foreshadows the speedy acknowledgement of our Confederate state's independence, and by its sudden apparition typifies the Confederate state, which has come into the host of nations like a comet blazing gloriously, end quote. Petty was wrong about independence, but correct about the comet as a metaphor. In the grandeur of time, the Army of Northern Virginia, like the Confederate States of America, was a short-lived shooting star. It appeared as a powerful illumination and quickly passed into the darkness. Perhaps 200,000 men stepped through its ranks during the course of the war. Undermanned, underfed, poorly clothed, and inadequately equipped, the Army of Northern Virginia kept a significantly larger and better-resourced Union Army at bay for almost four years. 
Its success was so great that in the minds of Northerners and Southerners alike, it came to symbolize the viability of the Confederate States. And its commander was perceived as arguably a general superior to all, including Napoleon Bonaparte himself. The combination of Lee and his army left an indelible mark on the landscape and psyche of the American nation, far beyond its four years. Thank you very much. <laughs>